Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World Is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about The, the Brown, Brown Bunny. <laughs> Welcome to The World Is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast celebrating films the world is wrong about. I'm your extremely positive host, Andras Jones, and... I'm also positive any host named Brian Connolly? I'm positive that you're Brian Connolly. You may <laughs> seem less positive about that. But something that we are both positive about, that most of the world is either... Hostile to, ignorant of, or uh, scornful of is the film that we're covering on today's podcast. What are we covering, Brian? We are covering Vincent Gallo's written, directed, starring, edited, shot by film The Brown Bunny, a much hated and strangely loved some by some film from 2003. A tough time in America, a tough time for people watching this movie. Um, I'm excited. This was one of the few movies that we both, like a year ago when we started this podcast, or a little, I guess, yeah, almost a year ago when we started this podcast, we were like, well, that's one of the movies we got to do. And I, I wonder if Mad Dog Time hadn't existed, maybe this would have been our first episode. <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely like a, you're waving a flag and making a strong statement that you like a movie that a lot of people hate with this one, for sure. Yeah. It's a it's it's an experience. Vincent Gallo is an extremely divisive person just as an individual and he made a film that is true to character. Two really, <laughs> Buffalo 66, but this one you know is really is not trying to make friends. Right? Uh, yeah, Buffalo 66 is the friend that you get, you make, and then maybe a year later, you're like, do I want this friend around? This is kind of a toxic friend. But Buff but Brown Bunny is like, I'm not going to be friends with that person. <laughs> and yet, there's something that, first of all, I think both films are, just from a filmmaking standpoint, are really something... If you love, if you like films, then you're not. You can't see everything. There are going to be some th films that turn you off. Some films where the bar to entry is too much, and that bar to entry might just be. Uh, I don't like to watch films with subtitles. Well, that's a that's a rough one. But if that's your bar to entry, then you know it's it's yours, whatever. And Vincent Gallo certainly has you know has offers <laughs> many bars to entry. But like anything that's a great work of art, you know, Hitchcock has things that make him hard to to approach if they hit you wrong. Yeah. I don't think it's actually unfair to compare them. I think we're just, we're, we are here. That's what our point is to say that Vincent Gallo made two great films. We're going to be talking about one of them here, The Brown Bunny. In our rotation, it is one that you chose. But as you say, it's one that we both love. And, uh, 
and we are both championing this film with gusto and a great deal of fear as to what we are setting ourselves up for by even associating with it. But I feel like that's kind of what a podcast like this is about. The world is wrong means throwing our arms around unpopular characters. Or unpleasant things. Yeah. Yeah. That have merit. Even if that merit is to expose something that is unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So speaking of exposing something unpleasant, let's play a clip from this (laughs) film. And because so much of what's pleasant about this film is what we see. Uh, What you're about to hear. eh. Anyway. Uh, and then <laughs> and gotta then play you, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you we just we just play a, a motorcycle going for. Uh, two yeah, minutes. I love that. Let's do that. Let's just play the first scene of motorcycle <laughs> motorcycles driving on track for three minutes. Let's just three minutes of motorcycle sounds. This will be like those videos people watch on YouTube, where it's just sounds of things that like calm you. The sound of motorcycles. Yeah, like in the hot rock. It's what Charlotte yeah. Ray listens to. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know what? You know what? I'm I'm in honor of this film. I'm gonna do that. So, folks, I love it. If you wanna just, I just, I don't know how long the, <laughs> that clip is, but it, it'll be going for a little bit. And just try and get into the get. If you, zone. I, honestly, if you really listen to this, just it'll put you in a really unique place. Yes. And uh, I don't know. Welcome to the world of the brown bunny. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it's my turn to tell you the plot, to tell everyone the plot of this film. Pretty simple plot. This is not a plot-driven movie, but here's what the plot is if you need it. This is back of the box. Pretty basic. 
Vincent Gallo plays Bud Clay, a motorcycle racer. He's traveling across the country doing some races. He is clearly a very damaged, very sad man. He has a lot of mumbling, kind of looks down a lot, seems depressed. <laughs> he interacts with a few women across America, all named after a flower. You got a lily, you got a rose, you got a violet. Uh, he has these kind of strange little intimate moments uh, with these women. It's kind of the only time where he seems, seems to open up to anybody. He drives a lot. That's about 70 minutes of the movie. <laughs> then for the last 25 minutes, he's in a hotel room with his girlfriend Daisy, played by Chloe Sevigny. They have definitely some unspoken things between the two of them. There is a strong emotion. They have a very intensely intimate moment, a pornographic intimate moment. And then you find out, spoilers, if you haven't seen this movie, watch it, because I'm going to spoil something. This is the Shyamalan twist here. Yeah, really, don't... She's... Wait, just give but, it a second. Uh, if you haven't... Okay, give us a... Turn it off. Okay, you've turned it off. Okay, now now the people are here that have seen the movie. Okay. She's dead. Oh, this is her. Geez, she's... <laughs> and she's like... This is like her ghost, or this is like his his dark memory, his memory of this of this horrible situation that happened. The end. <laughs> so, if that plot, if that description doesn't appeal to you, maybe you this movie isn't for you. But again, that is just the plot, which is not really what this movie is. This movie is an experience. This movie is true filmmaking. This is true visual storytelling. Like, you could say the plot, you could read the eight-page script, and it won't tell you at all what it's like to actually experience and watch this film. Yeah, it's so funny. Your description... Your description was a great description, first of all. Good job. <laughs> Good job. And if I was to describe the movie, I would describe it totally differently. I want to hear... You know what? Let's do two. I want to hear yours. I want well, to hear I haven't it. written it out, but basically... Just... It's this... There's, it's about this motorcycle rider. That's I, We start there. He's a motorcycle rider. But then we find out that this motorcycle rider is this is a creep in a van driving around, <laughs> lying to and sort of like humiliating women of all ages. And on the way, he goes and visits his girlfriend's mother talks to her yeah. about her brown bunny and tells the mother that they live together in California. And if we've watched Buffalo 66, we know that Vincent Gallo is the kind of guy who lies to his mother about his girlfriend. <laughs> and then yeah. he's sad and he's depressed and he goes to a hotel in Los Angeles where Chloe Sevigny shows up and gives him the most heartbreaking blowjob in cinema history, very graphically. And then we find out that she was never there in the first place and that this is all has been his, I don't know, mourning, sad, depressing journey to come to grips with the fact that she's dead because of his cowardice. And then yeah. he drives off alone, a existential... I don't know, not even hero, an existential, like just a, a total Person. existential character. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A man yeah. with no name, Bud Clay. He is a, he's, 
he's a bud. He's like he's all he's potential. It's all potential, right? He's nothing. He's just he's a cinematic device. Anyway, yeah. So <laughs> yours is totally accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but the, when I watched it, just the, how much of it is just like, okay, he is the guy that you're worried about. He shows up when the, if the music were different, when the van shows up, it's like, <laughs> you know, I was, I was, we, um, we just came out of watching Jennifer's body. Like, this is the van you don't want to get in, Jennifer. <laughs> this is the one that killed Jennifer. Yeah. Like, Bud Clay <laughs> killed Jennifer and Jennifer's body. Not really. Well, not really. It turns out that he's more, but like, <laughs> I guess inherent in all of this is it's really hard not to watch it and think, well, at least like the whole time you're thinking, well, at least he didn't kill her. You know, like, but that's a weird way, a weird place for the mo- for a movie to put you in. But maybe, but, but you could kind of read it as maybe he did because of his cowardice and his lack of action. No, I'm just thinking about the girl at the very beginning. So let's talk oh, that, about... Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, so, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. so that was my take on it. How is the world wrong about this, Brian? You deserve to, to, so, to do okay, this So, okay, so this movie is famously hated. There's, there's, there's certain movies uh, that are famously hated where people, when they hear the title... The first thing they think of is, oh, that's that movie that a lot of people hated a lot. Like, you know, Ishtar is one of those movies. Mad Dog Time is certainly one of those movies. Like, this, the type of movie that is considered to be, like, one of the most hated movies of all time. And it definitely has a history. Uh, the story behind it is really funny, actually. It's really interesting. So it premiered at Con. A different version of the movie, mind you. It was 26 minutes longer. And supposedly in that 26 minutes, it was... Five more minutes of the motorcycles at the beginning. Literally, five more minutes of that. What you heard that seemed to take forever to stutter episode. Imagine five more minutes of that. And more of him driving and just like kind of more of the arty, longer shit, I guess. It was booed at its premiere at con. Like the audience booed. Like I think they started booing like while the movie was playing. Like they didn't politely wait for the end. They were very French about it and very opinionated and started booing immediately. Roger Ebert, during the movie, supposedly got up in front of the screen and started dancing and singing, singing in the rain. That he was just dancing in front of the just like, just like He was just kind of like raving his arms in front of the screen while everyone was booing. It kind of basically turned into the theater at the end of Gremlins when they're all in the movie theater and they're all going crazy. That's in my mind, the audience, like, but in a, in a negative way, <laughs> like if the Gremlins all hated Snow White, if the Gremlins hated Snow White and they were throwing a fit, that would be like what, what the Brown Bunny premiere was. Vincent Gallo then hexed Roger Ebert's colon, put a hex on his colon. Roger Ebert then went in for chemotherapy or whatever, not for his colon, but for his, I think for his throat. Um, and it, and then Roger Ebert and him kind of got into like a back and forth, the kind of a feud of like Roger Ebert just saying like, you know, like, like I, I may have cancer that, like, that we go, but you're the person who always made Brown Bunny. Like I'm paraphrasing, I, 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 but they dissed each other. It became into like a, uh, like a Tupac versus Biggie sort of battle of film people, like we, which we rarely get. We rarely get like two people like really going at it and, over a movie, and that's what happened with this. Then Vincent Gallo re-edited the movie, cut out 26 minutes. Roger Ebert ended up giving it a thumbs up. They so that clearly like the peace was made. He was like, you know what, G- Gallo, you did make a great movie. You just had to cut those 26 minutes out. And so then like peace had been made. But the damage was already done. 
by all of that stuff before that. And it came in with quite a reputation. And people who saw this movie, knowing that reputation, are people who were really excited to see the next movie from the guy who made Buffalo 66, were kind of dismayed slash bored by just watching a dude drive in a van for 70 minutes. Like, literally, that's what a lot of this movie is, is him just driving and looking sad and shots out the wind the bug splattered windshield uh driving uh driving around and then of course the very graphic sex scene the real sex like not unsimulated was also very off-putting for people like this is you know you gotta remember this is like a good few years before we all had porno in our pockets with our iphones so like a lot of people still weren't used to just jumping into the hardcore sex world and the fact that it was an actress that people knew and people were, it was a lot of questions of like, is this, is this okay? Is this okay that she's doing this? Did she, was she okay with this? Like, so it like, it made a lot of... Speaking of Chloe Savigny. <laughs> yes. And yeah. so a lot of people just sort of getting, you know, disturbed by this movie and upset by this movie. And it doesn't, didn't help that Vincent Gallo kind of, you know, fanned those flames by just sort of like being very open and opinionated and angry all the time during the whole process of this movie coming out. Uh, and not and not really he's it's, he would kind of switch back and forth between giving a shit and not giving a shit, but all the time being very loud and opinionated. And so the world is wrong because of all of that, and because of all of that baggage, a lot of people won't watch this movie or will just go in already kind of made up, thinking like this movie is garbage. I'm gonna now sit through this garbage. I don't know who would do that. I would imagine a lot of people would just end up turning this movie off after like the motorcycle scene, you know, like I think a lot of people probably haven't sat through this whole movie. Yeah. So long, that was a long answer. (laughs) Well, let me just, then I'll just add my two cents to the, my main thing really is just that when people talk about this movie, they become seventh graders in the sense of like, (laughs) it's the movie where you, uh, you, Oh, you like Brown Bunny? Is it because of the blowjob scene? Is it because like, it's either, it's either offensively like people who are like prurient and about it of like, Oh, like it's pornography and it's really hot that you're like, Oh, it's, that's what I heard about that. And that's kind of, that's gross. And a conversation that doesn't, it's not what I'm looking for when I want to talk about this film or it's people who are very offended about the film. And I have, I actually have more, of a conversation I can have with those people, but a lot of times that's a, that's a more charged conversation and can be mm-hmm. like, you're not going to convince someone who sees some of this film. If you've experienced situations like this with guys like Vincent Gallo or just guys or anyone, I can understand watching this film and that barred entry is like, no, this is traumatizing. Fuck this. And I, this guy is not cool fuck like that's a totally valid response to this film definitely it it doesn't leave much room for a conversation about how good it is too (laughs) so so to me it's like so what and what i always wanted to say to people who just want to make it all about the blowjob because that's really people aren't offended by it being boring it's fine if this movie was boring if if it didn't have what looks like a a semi-non-consensual blowjob at the end of the movie it would be a lot easier to talk about it no one would want to probably but it would be easier to talk about and that to me misses the whole point and which what i was saying in my description which is that 
It's not that there's a blowjob at the end of this movie. It's that it is the saddest. Like if if I told you I was going to make a movie where the climax of it was a totally heartbreaking, real pornographic blowjob with two actual real Hollywood movie stars and I'm going to get that movie made and that movie's going to be artsy as fucking boring. <laughs> that, that's I mean, the thing that I love is I really hope that out there somewhere a bunch of like 14 year old boys were like oh I can't wait to watch I heard this movie The Blowjob and then they sit through Gordon Lightfoot music while cars are driving you know in the rain I kind of like that I kind of hope that that you know <laughs> happened <laughs> yeah but I and it but so okay so that's that's I feel like how the world is the sort of the general how the world is wrong in terms of how we've experienced it. Now, I want to ask you, what was your what was it about your experience of this film when it came out, when you saw it, that invited you in and allowed you to experience the film in a way that is not what we just talked um, about? I think I'm trying to remember because like I definitely came in like I loved Buffalo 66. Like I love that movie like that. I saw that movie when it came out when I was a teenager and that was just definitely part of that wave of exciting kind of mid-90s indie movies that just seemed so different and interesting with, with their distinct voices. You know, because that movie was about 96, I think, something like that. Like 98. Nine, nine, 90, oh, really? 98. So, like, that was ex- very exciting uh, to me. And I had already heard all this shit about this movie. Um but I was also kind of really well trained before I saw this movie because, like, my good friend Adam at the time, him and I were into this kind of movie. Like, we were into these sort of, like, kind of long shot, experimental, you know, vis- strongly visual storytelling movies like uh, like the films of Claire Denis, like Beautrevi, or like, you know, like, like a Pola X, or like just sort of these kind of, which also has a blowjob in it. Uh, but uh, these kind of, the, this era of art, of art film. And I, when going into the movie, I wasn't expecting this movie to be like that. I heard that people thought it was boring. I heard that about like all the, you know, controversial stuff. But watching it, and it was at the Capitol Theater, and I'm sure that's when you saw it too. Um, yeah. I was just mesmerized by it. Like it really was like one of the few truly hypnotic movies. Like I kind of put this up there with like uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey or Enter the Void as a movie that, or Stalker, like as a movie that really is just hypnotic, where I'm just like pulled into the images and it's almost like I'm dreaming, and I'm just sucked in. And it could have been eight hours long and I would have just sat there and just watched this movie. It's just, it's for a movie where the main character doesn't really talk much. And when he does, it's really quiet. I was so drawn into it. Like I was so just like fascinated by everything about this movie, like the music, the shots, the acting, like the story, like it really just sucked me in like strong. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, (laughs) So... There you go, man. There you go. Oh, See, no. I'm a bonehead guy too. I didn't mean to do. I didn't mean to do that. Bonehead. But I mean, it really like bonehead. Oh really? my god, it's still going. But uh, oh god, damn it. Uh, but anyways, yeah, this movie is just like there's something very unique about it. Like there's something very. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's a personal movie. I hope not. Uh, but uh, but there's definitely like a. 
a, a strong, uh, just strong intimacy going on in this movie that it's rare, and even in even in indie films. And this came out too, at the time when indie films started to be garbage, when they started to just be business cards to make a big movie. This is sort of the trickle time, like when this hap came out. And this movie's definitely not asking for him to make a Marvel movie or anything. <laughs> this is definitely a mic drop sort of movie. Well, yeah. I mean, oh boy. I don't really want to try and get into the intention in this film. It's it's tough because yeah. I think we mentioned it on an earlier episode. We made the, I don't want to say mistake, but we made the choice to like Vincent Gallo's Instagram and follow his Instagram <laughs> for a week. And then we made the choice to stop doing that. <laughs> and uh you know so he's he's a divisive character let's just say that vincent gallo probably wouldn't like us definitely and he would not <laughs> and we would probably not like him you know we might be a little bit more entertained by him than he would be by us just because He's a compellingly interesting person. And if I only had to deal with him for a little while, I'd kind of, I've told you the story about when I went out, when I went out to coffee with Eric Roberts and was really uncomfortable, right? And no, I'd never heard this story. Please tell me this story. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what happened with, with you and Eric Roberts? <laughs> This, is this a my dinner with Andre sort of thing? No, but to it, was the just, it was just really weird. So I'll, I'll, I, we, I was auditioning for, I think it was Pacific Heights. Oh, wow. Okay. And he was auditioning as well for something. So I think that's the time period. And we were both there at the same time. And I was impressed that he was Eric Roberts and he wanted to talk to somebody. <laughs> and then so on the way down, we ended up going leaving at the same time. And we were in the elevator. He was like, hey, you want to go for some coffee? I was like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then he just proceeded to tell one tall tale after another. And like, I'm a yes and kind of person. So I'm not going to be confrontational if someone's telling me, Oh yeah. When I was a rodeo cowboy, that's when I got this hitch in my thigh. And yeah. And then I was the roadie for Def Leppard for a year and a half. <laughs> and those are two things that he specifically said. And I was like, mm, really? Whoa. But mm, you know, like, <laughs> and to a certain point where it just sort of became like, I just started to be like, Okay, yeah, I but I would like I would just passive aggressive. I was kind of like passive aggressive. Like I'm now listening and but you know that I don't believe what you're saying. It was just the weirdest thing. And then he was like, "Okay, <laughs> done." And he got up and and left. <laughs> I want to say without paying the bill, but I'm pretty sure he <laughs> I guess my point is that I have an idea. Like, I, I feel like I would have about that much patience for Vincent Gallo. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you want to invite me to coffee? Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, now you're being really weird. Okay. I'm putting up with this to a certain point. And then I'm emotionally checking out and being like, okay, well, this is... I'm going to let you end this because I'm still going to keep watching, which is kind of the way I feel about this movie. <laughs> like, okay. Um... Yeah, for, I saw it my first time seeing it was at the Capitol Theater as well in Olympia, Washington. And also being totally hypnotized by it. And it's being it's one of those films where that first scene that we played you, it really is a compelling bit of filmmaking for how 
I don't know, kind of it's it's a combination of like of very lo-fi and super inventive in a way that kind of does have you questioning how did he do that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's just he just does the cinematic magic trick trick on all these levels with sound, with cinematography, with visual storytelling, with introducing a character. It's just yeah, it's it's just awe-inspiring work as a director. Like mm-hmm. I I challenge anyone who loves film and directing to watch the first 5 minutes and not just be like okay, well, he's good. You don't have to watch the rest of it. There's you there might after from there on, I feel like it it goes into places where I can totally understand why you wouldn't want to get into this guy's van. You know, that van <laughs> yeah. is, a, is a much safer place for me and Brian than for <laughs> some other people in, in our audience. Yeah. So uh, depending upon how you feel about that, you know, bring Jennifer along with you. If you decide to go on this movie, imagine Jennifer's by <laughs> your side. And if things get out of hand, you know, at least and, and Vincent's not going to Vincent Gallo's is not going to treat treat you any like he's going to do a lot better than. Uh, Adam Brody's character <laughs> treats you in, in Jennifer's body. Although Adam Brody would seem like he'd be a better, I'd have, I would have a more pleasant time on the way to getting killed with Adam Brody, I think, than just riding alongside Vincent Gallo. I think that would be an unpleasant <laughs> ride. Okay, other than being enjoy, the, he's such a compelling figure. The fact that he, the ability to make this film is in that like ugly, beautiful face thing that, and he knows how to use it. I, you know, I'm a sucker for this is when actors know how to use themselves as an instrument, as a writer director. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, boy, he sure does. So it's a, it's such a mixed bag because he's repellent and he's also incredibly charismatic and he plays mm-hmm. characters who are repellent and charismatic. And again, I get why you might lean towards the repellent, but there's still something that is in a world where everyone's trying to be liked. I really appreciate the, <laughs> you know, the it's not just the pornography that's pornographic in this. Vincent Gallo in the film is revealing sort of his ugliness mm-hmm. throughout in ways that I think is. Uh, as laudable as an artist, more interesting, more useful artistically than celebrations of heroism in a way that like what, what Steve Shaneberg was talking about in his interview in the fur mm-hmm. episode, like mm-hmm. Hollywood just wants to make movies about people who are heroes. Actors just want to play people who have heroic arcs. And it's like, okay, you know, here's someone who I don't think has any interest in being seen as a hero. Not at all. <laughs> So do you want to speak to to your experience of Gallo? Like how do you how do you navigate loving this film and having been a, Vincent Gallo's Instagram friend for a week? <laughs> you know, it's it's hard. It really is sort of like it's interesting because I mean, I mean I'm guilty of this. I'll give people exceptions because they make good art, but I won't do that if they're like own a donut shop. So there's some weird thing, like, if I heard that, like, there was an anti-Semitic donut shop, I would not buy those donuts. No matter how good they were, I would find another donut. 
But if somebody made a movie and they were kind of despicable, but I liked the movie, it's harder for me. And this is an argument in a conversation we've had many times at the video store when the Vulcan video was around. Like it was always a conversation about anybody, like all these people like, oh, I heard he's a jerk. All right. Like, especially if someone was in Hollywood like you, where it's like you have more of a window into people's personalities that aren't even on Instagram. So if you're like, oh, I love so-and-so, like, oh, well, he's a real raging asshole. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. He's like, oh, he's good at hiding it, but oh, man. And then they're like, well, can I watch a movie by a horrible asshole? So I, I don't know. Like, it's definitely like a hard thing to be like, I invite this movie into my house, but I would not invite Vincent Gallo into my house. But aren't I already doing that by inviting this movie in which he wrote, directed, starred in, edited, shot like it's him? So it's like a weird, it's a weird thing. Art is a weird thing like that, you know. Um, does it make it better if he's dead? And in 30 years, can we enjoy this movie knowing that he's not around, not making money off of it, not using that money to be a jerk to people? I don't know. It's a real hard, it's, I mean, yeah, like his Instagram account is not a thing I enjoyed seeing pop up on our feed. <laughs> it really was depressing. Uh but yeah, I don't know. But like, I love his two movies a lot. Like, and, but he doesn't hide in his two movies that he's a jerk. Like, there's not like, it's not like he made two movies where he's feeding the poor and being like the, the ultimate gentleman, you know? So like, it's not a surprise that he's a jerky guy because he's a jerky guy in his move. He's a really jerky guy in his movies. So I don't know. Like, is that honesty make it more palp, you know, more easier to digest? I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I think it would have been harder if he made movies where he was trying to be Abraham Lincoln or whatever, you know? But <laughs> Well, then it, that's the does thing that, is he get away with it. Like, well, if he, if he was, <laughs> look, I, I'm not saying that I know people who, well, actually I do. I do know people who are, who hold views that I consider to be as repugnant as Vincent Gallo's. And, who have behaved in ways that I found objectionable in terms of their power dynamics with people because of what they desired, whether that was a sexual thing or just abusing power. And a lot of those people go out of their way to portray themselves as really groovy. Like they get away with it because they are good at, they're able to portray themselves as, as nice people. And so I, I just find there's something in art. I think that there's something, again, laudable about if you're going to make movies in which it's I'm the director, I'm the star, I'm the cinematographer, it's me, 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 then you better be exposing something that is that you're troubled about in yourself that's worth working out in front of us all. Because if all you want yeah. to do is show off what a great, fighter you are you know like look you know that to me that to me actually is is at a way lower vibration i'm more i'm i'm less comfortable inviting that into my home than a weird piece like this it made me think as i was thinking about this there's something you know my father was a dream psychologist and one of the things that he told me when i was a kid about uh, avoiding about when I would have nightmares about actually there was a, there was a big bad wolf in a 
in a, like a kid's storybook. And it used to freak. Mm-hmm. I used to have nightmares about this big bad wolf. And he would say, you know, if you re- if you really want to not have nightmares about the big bad wolf, the thing to do is to think about it before you mm-hmm. go to sleep. And if you really think about it before you sleep, then you won't. Your brain won't need to work it out, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and it totally worked. And it's always worked. I've never yeah. had a repeat nightmare in my life. That's what you said. Like uh, in in because I'm in therapy right now, and that's totally what my therapist tells me is like the things that bother me. I'm supposed to kind of embrace those things and tell my brain, okay, like, let's be uncomfortable. Okay, let's be upset. And that's so much easier to get over it than it is to try to fight it and run away from it. You know? Exactly. Like, it's it's, it's a weird thing. It's It doesn't seem like it, that's how it should be, but it totally, it totally works. Well, it's because... <laughs> like that's how I, like, yeah. Yeah. That's how we work. That's how we work through these things. And that's how dreams work. And I have, I'm of the belief that film, particularly, I think art in general, but film is probably the most dreamlike of the arts. Mm-hmm. And so a film like this, to me, The Brown Bunny, is, is kind of a nightmare. It's beautiful. <laughs> It's haunting. It's troubling. If you really think of its implications, it's even more troubling. Mm -hmm. But if we don't kind of embrace it psychically, like I feel it's when I was watching this and Buffalo 66, this is all they were made pre Me Too. Now, all the Me Too stuff, when people say pre Me Too, that stuff. People knew what was going on because it was happening to them or their friends or they were doing it or they were not seeing it. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've talked about going into meetings and just the air of what we now call toxic and what was then mm-hmm. just sort of like, no, that's how, you know, that's what you want to do to blah, blah, blah. blah. You know, that's, that's how you got to talk to work in this business. Man, woman, mm-hmm. whoever, you got to know how to talk tough like this about this stuff because that's how professionals talk about cocks and cunts and whatever. And that's how that's, you know, and you're like, what the fuck? I come from Olympia. We, we don't, we don't know how to talk like that. We don't say those words. <laughs> right. Uh. right. So, uh, so I guess my point is that there's something about this film and this is what I want to get to, because I think watching it again and knowing we were going to talk about it, it was a different experience than just watching it and liking it or talking with you about it. And watching the sex scene, the blowjob scene with Chloe Sevigny, there's a negotiation before it that you can't kind you can't tell. And Vincent Gallo sets this up in all of his dynamics with all with the different women he talks to, where you can't quite tell if they're interacting with him as the director. Or as the character, like maybe it's some they feel like improvs, and then they, he's always kissing them, and it feels like yeah, there's something that some there's something that I don't want to say it's non consensual because they're all there and they're all in the film and they're all but there's something the feeling of skirting the edge of consensuality runs throughout this film, and. And then it ends with this act that goes on, has historically gone on in Hollywood in hotel rooms a lot. And we found out after Me Too was totally going on with all of the people who sneered at the brown bunny for having a blowjob in it. 
and were happy to play like they were heroes for being offended by this movie. And I don't think that Vincent Gallo is a hero for making the movie, but artistically, I feel like that's a heroic goal is to make stuff that's so true, true, exploring your own dirty little power trips that it it's ahead of its time in exposing something that was just universal and not only say universal because it wasn't everyone was doing it, but it was universal enough to be an experience which has now become this massive movement of that's based upon the idea of almost every woman being able to say, yeah, me too. Something like some guy tried to get me to do something in a hotel room I didn't want to do. And here we have that being portrayed acting wise or not. And Chloe Sevigny has come out and said, I'm, you know, she she celebrates this film and I celebrate her right to say what she consents to. But when I watch the film, it doesn't look like she's, 100% consenting as an actor. And then I think, well, if Vincent Gallo was guilty, wouldn't he want to portray that as consent? And instead he portrays it as kind of not consent and kind of not consent is not, doesn't reflect well on him or his film. And then that becomes more heroic, even though I don't think he's heroic. There's something about this film that stirs that inspiration in me. Like, I wish I was this, I aspire to be this courageous in my ego trips. <laughs> it's interesting because the movie originally starred, I think it was Winona Ryder and Kristen Dunst were not Daisy, but they were like going to be Lily or Rose or whatever, or Violet. And then they dropped out because they did not get along with Vincent Gallo or vice versa. Well, and they never, they never gave an interview saying what happened. Like I would be interested to hear from them too what it was where they were like, no, I'm not going to be in this fucking movie. I don't want to do this. Like, it'd be interesting. Like, I wonder who, like, I'm assuming Kristen Dunst was going to be the girl at the beginning who works in, like, the convenience store who gets kind of wooed by him quickly uh, and then brought on this possibility of a trip and he just ditches her. And oh. maybe Winona, maybe Winona Ryder was going to be the... The uh, Cheryl Teague's character, maybe, or maybe she was the prostitute in Vegas. I don't know which of those characters they were going to be. They didn't say. But, but I mean, like, Kristen Dunst is okay working with Lars von Trier, but didn't want to work with Vincent Gallo. So v- Lars von Trier, another, you know, uh, difficult fil- filmmaker and human being. Uh, so I wonder just sort of like what, I mean, it could have just been creative differences, you know, for all we know. But maybe they just didn't jive with what he was how he was doing this i don't know but but they you know they said no which is great they left and they didn't do it um that's called consent it's it's a great thing (laughs) you can say no to something you know it's it's very powerful and they did which is no i that's the one clip that i've seen you've seen the the brown bunny with the director's commentary. I haven't, but there's, oh my God. there's just one oh. tiny little clip of it from the very beginning of the movie on YouTube, like maybe a minute and a half clip. I might even just drop it in here. There's a Captain Ugly. I wonder if I'm, it's like, I'm ugly from all angles, but I'm, as you're watching the film, see if you can pick out which is my ugliest angle. 
don't jump to any conclusions. Just when you think you've seen the ugliest thing you've you've ever seen, give it a chance. There's there's always something worse. Uh, the girl who's supposed to play this girl here originally was going to be Kirsten Dunst, and she's a jerk. And then it was going to be Winona Ryder, and she's a jerk. And then I just found this girl couple miles away from this gas station. Can you tell us a little bit about, for those of us who may never have access to the director's commentary? Oh my God. It's one of the best, maybe the best ever. Like it's only on the Japanese DVD. So if you're lucky enough to find the Japanese DVD, have a player that'll play it. It has the commentary on it. And it's the, the most self-loathing commentary ever. It is a lot of him just being like, I was booed, I'm ugly. And then he begins to just start selling the things on that you see in the movie. He's just like, I'm broke. That jacket I'm wearing, you can have that jacket. It's this much money. Like, please email me at da-da-da to get the jacket. And that's sort of like what the commentary becomes is basically his private eBay. And uh, But it's great. It's funny. It's funny because this movie to me is not funny at all. Like, like Buffalo 66 is a very dark comedy, and I, but I find it very, very funny. There's nothing in Brown Bunny that I find funny at all. But his commentary for this is very funny. It's like a comedy. Um, highly recommended. He doesn't really go deep into the making of Doi. I believe he brags that he grounded his own lenses for this movie. I think on the commentary he said, I did everything. I even grounded my lenses. Uh, so, <laughs> Is it great? It's, it's ground. You grind <laughs> yeah. your... You know, you grind the gr- lenses, grind, grind the <laughs> lenses. He said he grind, grind his own lenses, and uh, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good. It's a good commentary. It's up there with the Gary Marshall commentaries and the Abel Ferreira commentaries and the Paul Verhoeven commentaries as the best commentaries ever. Wait, who were those? Abel Ferreira, Gary Marshall, Paul Verhoeven. Those are all the great, like, those guys give the best commentaries. And then the one Vincent Gallo one. Those are my favorites. Right on. So, but all difficult. <laughs> maybe not Gary Marshall. Although... You don't know. You don't know. He, you had good people, maybe, to protect himself. Yeah. Uh, he, he, re- he, he refused to give Albert Brooks's money back in Lost in America. And that's enough for me. The guy's a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> schmucks. What schmucks? Schmucks Wayne Newton. You said schmucks Wayne Newton. Um... It's sad, like, reading about the longer version, I really want to see that, but I never will see that. Like, I wouldn't mind seven more minutes of Of the motorcycle or whatever. Yeah. Like, that, I, I love that stuff. I love movies where it's just people doing things. I don't know like, how to describe it better, but, like, that's why I love, like, uh, Escape from Alcatraz. Just watching Clint Eastwood just, like, do shit silently. Like, just when people, when actors and actresses can get into that place... I find that really interesting, like watching people eat in the movie or whatever, and like just watching Vincent Gallo drive to that. This the soundtrack of this movie is amazing. It's so good. Uh, do you own the soundtrack? I will by the time this comes out, because I'll have dumped <laughs> a bunch of it into this. But like it's so like that Gordon Lightfoot song. Like there's nothing cool about putting Gordon Lightfoot in your movie, but he does, and that sh- that scene is beautiful. Like that's the shot because it's like that's when it's rainy and he's driving and this Gordon this this Gordon Lightfoot song is playing and it's just so beautiful, and then using that song from that Richard Donner Twilight Zone episode, "Come Wander with Me." He said, "Come wander 
with me, love. Come wander with me away from this sad world. Come wander with me. He came from the sunset. He came from the sea. He came from my sorrow and can love only me. Like, what a brilliant idea to be like, I'm going to take this song from this, I think it was the last episode of The Twilight Zone or almost the final episode, directed by Richard Donner. It's a song sung in the episode. And he takes that song and puts it in this movie. No one had ever used this song in a movie before. Uh, and that was great. Like, what an interesting idea. to do. Like, who would have thought to put that song in a movie? And it's beautiful in this movie, putting it in a different context. Like, it's just like, it's so good. And then the soundtrack has... A bunch of songs by John Frusciante, which aren't in the movie, but I, I, I don't know if they were like the original soundtrack, and then they, he decided to not use them, but he put them on the soundtrack, and they're great songs as well. Like, it's so, it's really good. The music in this really adds that kind of sad driving across. Well, I think I mentioned it, but it reminds, like, those parts in the uh, One Trick Pony, where it's just them kind of on the road driving, and that kind of like sleepy eyed, like, what, like, when people are in a band, they kind of understand what it's like. That, that kind of where you're just driving on freeways and you're looking at the back of the same car for hours. And this movie really taps into that in the first part, you know? Yeah, that was back in uh, back when vans were still uh, seen as, as places of refuge and creativity, you know? <laughs> Have we... Well, we, we're kind of working backwards from the climax of this film. Yeah. We've talked extensively about the driving. I think someone who listened to this uh, podcast might think <laughs> of the idea that it, this is all just driving and blowjobs. But no, <laughs> this is not that kind of film. This also includes these scenes. Well, I think the th I think of them as like three main scenes. There's... Mm -hmm. Well, I guess four. There's and, and three of them are pickups. So there's three scenes where he picks up or has weirdly weird interactions with three different women that are all sexually charged in some way or another. And then the one scene with the mother where mm -hmm. he tells the lie that sets up all of our preconceived notions going forward, thinking that this is that he's meeting up with his current girlfriend and not lying to her mother about her death. Mm -hmm. um, which all of that comes rushing back at the end. But I want to just like kind of unpack those. So let's, I, I want to, mm -hmm. let's first talk about, because I feel like the scene with the mother also reminds me, I would just, you even uh, suggested I go back and watch Buffalo 66 and I did. And it kind of reminded me of the scenes with Ben Gazzara and 
Angelica Houston at the table where he's just kind mm-hmm. of looking away. Like she'll, she'll be talking uh, at Vincent Gallo and Ben Gazar is leaning as far to get out, almost to get as far as he can to, without getting out of the frame. Like, <laughs> and there's yeah. a similar thing happening here where he goes and meets with the mother. Now, you want to talk about a little bit about I think there's something special about that scene, but how? What is it about the, the Vincent Gallowness of it for you? What, what? <laughs> well, it's just like he's basically like it's just him talking to the mom, but then also in the shot is I'm guessing the mom's mom, like the grandmother. I'm guessing just sitting there, almost looking annoyed that she's like in the movie. <laughs> like she's just like, why is this dude in my? talking to this lady like why why is he making this movie here like it looks like she wasn't invited and and she's just there and she doesn't want to be there but she's keeping her prominently in the shot and it's a very simply directed scene i think it's like two angles yeah of them talking like one side of the table and the other much like in buffalo 66 so it just kind of goes from one side it just goes from all the different sides of the table um and but it also kind of also so that scene kind of feels a bit like like a documentary a bit like improvised like it seems very there's something very naturalistic about the interaction and it's also really shocking and i do definitely think at this point in the movie realize this is not the same performance and vincent gallo gave in buffalo 66 it's very quiet it's very it's much more uh, it doesn't quite have the um i'm trying to think of the right word like like him at Buffalo 66 is like it's all ego and anger and just very, you know, like opinionated. And in this it's very just sort of quiet and sad and and like he's just sort of like asking about this bunny and he's confused by why the bunny's still around and like how long does bunnies live? And like he's just kind of like wondering about why this bunny's there. Um, it's, it's a great scene. It's a very weird scene, especially because that old lady does not look happy. To be part of this movie at all, <laughs> another lack of consent in this in this film. I mean, it it really does like. That's a scene where. I mean, Vincent Gallo is not this character, but Vincent Gallo is still that guy, and you kind of get this feeling of like if Vince Vincent Gallo is hanging out with old elderly people. This is what it's like. Like this is. <laughs> It's weird. He doesn't belong. Like, I've been in those houses. That like that's in that's a very New England area that he's driving through. I think it's some maybe it's in New Hampshire or Vermont or someplace. But it reminded me of Massachusetts, and I've been in those those houses and those kitchens. And Vincent Gallo would seem really weird and off-putting there, <laughs> even at his best, which is whatever Vincent Gallo's best is. <laughs> I just wanted to address that scene because I feel like that's the kind of thing that gets totally overshadowed in the discussion of this film about the climax of the film when I feel like this weird moment that sets up, again, the economy with which he makes his movie. Like the movie functions because we believe this lie. And we believe this lie because the situation is already so weird that we, like, what, like, what, like, we're just so confused by, and that of course we accept it. And then that's what makes what 
is otherwise pornographic into something that's poetic and beautiful and troubling in other ways. And that's like the, like, that's the magic trick of this film. I want to extend the metaphor to pulling the rabbit out of the hat, but I just did. So, haha. So, yeah, I just feel like, I feel like that's, that's, I've never heard anyone talk about that scene. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's, it's huge. Like just from a writer's standpoint of figuring out, because the whole film hinges on that scene more than anything else. The big scene that I'm always shocked no one talks about is the Shell Teague scene, which I think is the best scene in the whole movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, can we set that up first with... So he has this scene. So he has three intimate interactions with three different women. The first is what... Is she Lily? Right? Is Li- No, Shell Teague's is Lily. No, okay, so who's... Rose is the first one? I think it's Rose no, no, or Ro- Violet. Violet is the first one. Okay. <laughs> So, basically, he shows up in this, he pulls up in his van, we see her in the foreground and this creepy guy getting out of this van in a scene that, if you just turned them, if you just pedaled slightly different music, or any music Silence of the Lambs! Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he walks in, he tells her to come, invites her to come to California. She's kind of flirting with him a little bit, just like giving him eyes. And he invites her to come to California and she says, yes. And you're sort of like, kind of, I hate you movie. No, she wouldn't only because you're directing the movie and don't get in his van. And this is going to be bad. And (laughs) he really like, it's, it's, it feels very uncomfortable, similar to the trick he does at the beginning of Buffalo 66. Like what horrible thing is he going to do to this woman? And then he takes her, makes her leave her home, says, okay, he gives her these beautiful, I think if they're beautiful or they're creepy, depending upon how you see the thing, but she, something she experiences as these beautiful romantic kisses, go get your stuff, babe. And then we're going in five minutes. She goes in and he drives off. And for me, there was a little bit of like, I was so relieved that nothing bad happened. And also so impressed with how he just totally flipped my opinion. He went from being someone who I thought was doing one kind of ego trip to just being like, no, no, no. I'm ego tripping on a whole different level, buddy. You know? Yeah. This is not about... Yeah, I don't know. So that's the first one. Now you talk about the next one, which you're right. This scene is... It's a weird scene, but it's really interesting. I've never seen anything like it in a movie. So he stops off at a rest stop. Didn't you say you've been to this rest stop? I feel like or I've you been went to there. rest stop. That yeah, I feel it's su- it is like it is it's, a such a everywhere in California rest stop. Yeah, and he goes to like the snack machine or whatever, and Cheryl Teagues is just sitting there at a picnic table just by herself. There are young listeners here. Can you tell listeners who Cheryl Teagues is? Uh, isn't she... She was a model, right? She, she was, like was a, the like, original like, Sports like Illustrated, Sports Illustrated swimsuit, swimsuit model. Yeah. Yeah. The and, original, like, whatever... If So, depending upon whatever you think about that, there is an iconic place that she holds in the mind of... I think that there's a way that Vincent's, Vincent Gallo's using of her in this role 
speaks to, subverts and undermines something. If you imagine that this is who was probably on his wall. And guys, if he's a little bit older than me, so like that, this was all a little bit before I was paying attention. She was sort of of the Farrah Fawcett generation, mm-hmm. but she was a sexual icon for guys of Vincent Gallo's age, who, like I when said, younger, didn't yeah. have porn in their fo- like. She was a pornographic icon, whether or not she was ever pornographic. Like even though what she was doing was, you know, fully legit and wasn't pornographic, but that. Her appearance in this film and what you're about to describe, I feel like, relies heavily on her iconography. Yeah. At least, yeah. Anyway, had to throw that And so, so she's just sitting there and he comes back and it's almost like this weird, it's just like this weird unspoken magnet <laughs> that happens where basically they just, he just sits down with her. And they kind of look at each other. She looks very sad. And this is like, she's older now, of course. Like, this is 2003. So she has kind of a weathered face. Like, she looks, you know, beautiful but older. Yeah. And they just start, they just start kind of softly making out. You're just watching people make out (laughs) in a movie. Like, and it feels real. It feels like not movie making out, but like real life, like you're spying on people making out. And they don't know that you're watching. So it's very voyeuristic in a way. Like, I've never seen making out in a movie. Like, mostly nobody makes out in movies. Usually you kiss or you fuck and that's it. But it's not, like, just watching people make out. And it's just a long scene of them making out. And there's something beautiful and sad about it, which is, like, every moment in this movie between people. And it's just, it's so interesting to watch. It really is. Um, Yeah, just watching two, you know... Older people making out with each other at a, at a, at a truck stop. Or not truck, just a car rest area. Recreational car stop. Uh, yeah. And then he gets up and walks away. Gets in the van and drives off. Yep. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard not to watch the film, watch this scene as as a metaphor because it doesn't make sense in any kind of reality other than that again, the, this is my ego trip factor Mm -hmm. is off the charts in the sense of, okay, again, like you're watching this. And with this one, this was the first sense to me of like, Oh, well this is a director doing an improv with this actress and she's responding to what he's doing but i don't know like it feels so real and the get the knowing what i know about what we know about the film that it's really just him with it he's the cinematographer so he just he's setting up shots and basically bringing his actor out to some place in the van and then we're gonna do this and He's weird. <laughs> Vincent Gallo is weird. And if you're Cheryl Teagues in that situation, he got an amazing performance out of her. It's beautiful. If there was, you know, it's hard to navigate consent in an improv, in a public plate. Like it's a very, seem, it's like seems very safe, but the scene doesn't feel safe. The scene feels like like raw and intimate and 
dangerous. And again, this wonderful feeling of relief when he leaves. Leaves. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. And the whole movie has that kind of danger feel because it doesn't seem like there's anyone in the crew at all. Like it really does seem like like when you look at the IMDb thing, he's listed as production designer, set decorator, costume designer, makeup, like art department. It's all him. And the only place where there's names that aren't his is sound. So maybe there was like a few dudes holding microphones <laughs> while they're doing this. But other than that, like someone has to maybe move the camera. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like when you watch this, the camera doesn't really move that he just kind of sets it up on a tripod and goes, I don't, I don't really know, but like it definitely does have that. It kind of gives it that raw sort of like snuff film feel in a way of like, this is just made by some guy. He just made this movie by himself. Like there's no, buddy else around and he's driving around alone he's really he's really driving around alone and you feel it like you really feel it in the scenes with the other people that it's just them or it's just him and that gives it this extra kind of loneliness too to it which is interesting like you don't see like if this movie had a crew and it looked fancier it wouldn't quite have that kind of beautiful emptiness that it, that it has and having Having that part of the movie, it just like adds so much. And the fact that he shot on 16, which also gives it more of like a home movie sort of quality, you know, like film home movie, old home movie, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Like, and if it was shot, yeah, on 35, it wouldn't quite have that. Like when he's drive that scene where he drives his bike through the salt flats and just kind of disappears. Yeah. That you just feel like he's the only one there for miles. <laughs> like there's nobody else there. Like literally, you're watching a movie like this is a person like he might as well be on the moon, you know. And uh, I love that that loneliness that this movie has, and it totally works with the themes of the movie and story. Someone has to shoot some of that, like where like when the van's driving away. Yes. Yeah. 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 For sure. It's got to, someone's so got to like, be following in another but, car. I feel like that's. <laughs> I, I bet that it's. I bet there's a couple. I bet there's another car following, with food, and <laughs> and gear, and but maybe the other actor. Maybe five people total. Or oh, something not even. Crazy. Probably not even that. like. Like I think there's more people on a porn set than there is on this movie. You would know having all you know with your extensive experience on porn sets. I'm purely a consumer, except for that one scene with Tracy Lords. But that's for a, t- a tale for another for another day. So back to this film. Yes, that scene with Cheryl Teagues is nuts. Want to point out that. She never puts out her cigarette throughout the whole thing. The whole makeout session with Vincent Gallo. She's, she starts holding the cigarette. She never puts it down. There's a way <laughs> that there's just something that is so... For a scene that feels so dangerous, it also feels so casual and loving and mm-hmm. odd. that it, That does feel like it's a metaphor for like... These are all the relationships along the way that meant a lot, but then ended and moved on. But I don't know it's just it seems very poetic, and you know just just tremendous use of uh, Cheryl Teagues. Like, yeah. why does it like maybe I don't I don't feel like that's just stunt casting. That's uh, that was phenomenal. Why isn't she in more films? 
I know. I feel like, I mean, and people forget that modeling is in a way acting. Like you're having to do certain expressions and hold your body in a certain way and put out forth a feeling with your face and body. Oh, and by the way, she's more like she looks like a, like the weathering on her is like it's that what what people complain about that like, oh, when when women get older, they just get older when men get older, they get distinguished. She looks fucking distinguished, like beautiful yeah. in a way that she never was when she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I mean, that's other. She was professionally beautiful in this amazing professional, like athletic way then. But yeah. who she is in this scene that's is so good. Yeah, like, great. why is she not in more movies after this? Because that's some I, I don't know how you could watch this and not think. Yeah, Cheryl Teague is available for movies. Why don't we put her in something where she like doesn't have to drive around in a van with Vincent Gallo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then the third one is in Vegas where he yeah. picks up a prostitute who he notices has a, a necklace that says Rose. I hadn't picked up on all the flower stuff. So good, good on you. And in this situation, do you want to describe this? What is this situation? Well, I like this scene's great because it's, I believe it's all one shot or it feels like it is. And he clearly had all these actors set up at different parts of these few blocks in Vegas. And it's just him driving and he kind of slows down and a, and a, prostitute, a prostitute will come up to the car and kind of be like, hey, interesting. And he'll be like, nah. And he'll drive around, find the next one. And then he, fi- he finally circles back to one of the first ones. <laughs> is Rose and he lets her in the car, but they don't really, they don't get to do anything, which he kind of this sort of, it's just kind of an emotional uh, release is what he has with this lady. Like he just kind of talks to her a little, asks her some questions and it's just some emotions. And then he kind of just lets her out of the, the car <laughs> and gives her some just, money. Like, and she's like, is that it? And he's like, yep. <laughs> Is and this is the one. So the first two interactions, the character is, but also because of the way the movie's made, the director is just making out with his actress in these very, very realistic, intimate, intense ways that just on its own right now sets off like that sets off alarms about consent, like yeah. All of them, you know, in a way that I think the film portrays, it's, it, you know, it, it knows what it's building up to. It knows where this is going. So this is the director is, is setting up again, the, this character as this guy and then undercuts it again. He goes and he picks up this prostitute who is actually looking for sex. And then he doesn't, he diset, like he kind of is going around not satisfying these three different <laughs> women in totally different ways which i would say that's the main sort of unifying element of his three interactions with these women yeah just i mean they're not very (laughs) they're not empty in a way because in the moment they seem fulfilling for a moment but then it's just sort of like and again because of the way the movie ends you wonder like is this all real or is this all part of his thinking is this just his dream is he just seeing these people is he just walking past Gerald Teagues in a park 
and thinking he does this, or does he actually do this? I mean, the total you know, like, thing, the Cheryl it, Teague's thing, seems like he's driving and imagining a Sports Illustrated. Like, he's a ima- this yeah. is a fantasy. The yeah. whole film is kind of like this like super intense like incel fantasy of like that's kind of Vincent Gallo's whole filmography is like I'm a totally awkward guy who no one will no woman would like they could see me coming what a creep I am a mile away but I imagine a world where they just want to kiss me and that's what my movies are about you know like because the way that they are they don't feel real like the movie like the interactions between everybody in this movie feels and actually the only interactions that do feel real is at the end with chloe savini and that one tells you that it's not real at the end but the other ones feel like a fantasy it feels like a weird the sort of like what is this like this can't be really happening to this these, these characters right and maybe they didn't, you know, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting interpretation to think of all these scenes as being not things that actually happened to the character of Bud Clay, but just stuff he's thinking about. Now, you recently watched this, you can talk about this or not, but you watched this with someone who did not have as good a reaction to it <laughs> as... I watched it with, I watched it with my wife and she saw this movie when it came out and hated it and saw it and was not looking forward to it. When I told her we were doing this, she's like, oh, geez. And then we watched it, you know, again, because it's COVID, so she can't escape. And I can't watch it somewhere else. And so we had to watch it while she was at work in the living room. Oh. <laughs> so like, it's sort of like a... She like and she she is she she's a, she loved Buffalo sixty six and she's a fan of Vincent Gallo in movies, but like she basically told me like she loves the first part of this movie loves the driving loves that but once it goes to the Chloe Sevigny stuff she hates it and she hates that she's a ghost and is stupid <laughs> and she's like oh really she's just like the movie is just I hate that the last half hour of this movie is so dumb and I hate it but man that first hour is so good. And so it's just like, <laughs> and I've, and like, and I've known her for years and like always when this movie's come up in the video store, or whatever, she's like, ah, oh, the fucking ghost blowjob, please. Oh, Jesus. I I, <laughs> just killing. <laughs> if I ever come back as a ghost, please don't make it where I just have to endlessly give Vincent Gallo a blowjob just to make him feel better. Uh, you know, it's. <laughs> Yeah, not, <laughs> not a thing. nobody wants to. Ugh. That's that's a sad fate for any ghost. Is this to make give him a blowjob to make him feel any sort of anything? Don't like don't make a ghost do that. Um, but I was reminded that there's another ghost blowjob in Ghostbusters. Dan Aykroyd gets a a blowjob from a spirit in that. Not movie, so. Not one that'll make you cry. Not I one think that. That scene probably made a few parents cry. Of like, why am I watching this with my children? No, no. I, uh, you know what? This is that's. <laughs> I, you know what? It's so funny. It's so that is so funny because I really, I. When you told me that 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 you uh, had a bad reaction to the film, I thought it was about the sort of like watching the weird negotiation to get her to get Chloe Sevigny the actress to do this to take the improv to this place 
And (laughs) and no, it's not that. It's the the plot. (laughs) And to me, that's okay. I'm sorry. Then the world is wrong. That's the world is wrong because it's that's not what the movie's about. It's just you know. It just that's what it takes to like. I don't. It's it's such a it's such an odd thing. Especially you know. I'm I'm glad that Roger Ebert finally came around on the film because I feel like brown the brown bunny is like as close to the vision like the Russ Meyer vision of bridging the world that he came out of and big Hollywood features. Mm-hmm. that beyond the valley of the dolls and i still haven't seen wait no i did see uh the eight minutes nine minutes how many minutes is it the seven minutes how many minutes is <laughs> oh, it se- seven minutes <laughs> does that the seem se- right yeah i think it's the seven minutes yeah anyway yeah so I- and there are a lot of ways that you could have that you could smuggle pornography as a cinematic language into legit films Mm -hmm. that would be so much more crass and less poetic and wouldn't earn it and would really truly be pornographic Mm -hmm. to know that that's the trick you're going to play and build a movie that earns it as an emotional beat Mm -hmm. and also you know, again, it's uncomfortable, but if you leave the uncomfortable stuff in, then that's art, you know? And again, I feel very different if Chloe Sevigny was saying something different about it. But again, believing, uh, I got to believe that she, that she's out from, she, she's not in the van anymore and she could say whatever she wants to say. So yeah, I just feel like it's, uh, yeah, I'm re- I'm total I'm a little bit flummoxed because I was trying to set up a yeah girl moment against uh Vincent Gallo and instead I got one sort of like the scene in in Seinfeld where he's ratting on Brian Cranston to his uh to his priest for converting <laughs> to Judaism for the jokes and he's like, "Oh, so you're a, this offends you as a Jew?" He's like, "No, it offends me as a comedian." <laughs> So this, so Vincent Gallo offends you as a, a woman? No, he offends me as a storyteller. <laughs> yeah, pornography in movies is fine. It's yeah. just, it's bad storytelling that's offensive. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's the real offense. Just don't, just tell a better story. Oh, see, I, well, uh, <laughs> that's just a, that's a matter of taste. You know, I'm not sure I want to come back uh, as a ghost and have to give Vincent Gallo blowjobs blow either, but... Nobody if, does. I don't. You know I what? don't want that. <laughs> but I. But here's what I do think. I do think that a film about that, as far as a film about mourning a breakup, there's a lot of emotional beats that it hits that are really, that are really strong, and definitely part of mourning a, a love relationship breakup. There is an erotic element to it that is rarely in films. And if you imagine, well, what you have to imagine is that in the re- in the reality of that film, he's not getting a blowjob. He's by himself in a room trying to make himself feel better with a fantasy, which is something mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people who would never 
have the courage to put it in a film or and even in a you know a blog post can relate mm. to that experience if they're honest with themselves uh i say themselves because obviously not me mm. but uh yeah because i am you know because i am just a disembodied voice i don't even have a body what would i do yeah. what would i be doing in that room i don't know i just be i guess i'd just be commenting on it just like now this is i'd be standing in the corner giving my dissertation on whether or not it is a an actual work of art this blowjob or is it just pornography mm-hmm. i fall on the art side what, what say you brian i think pornography is art i think it's an artist pornography i think that it's the same thing like i think this is uh it's both like it's pornography if it's the definition of pornography is showing sexually explicit material but it is art in that it's an expression made by a human being through a medium you know so like yeah (laughs) i think it's both it depends on how you use it. If you're masturbating to brown bunny, okay, that's your thing. <laughs> or are you actually getting feelings out of this? Like that's uh, you know, it just depends on the viewer and the. I guess the. I guess you can say it depends on the attention of the artist. But at the same time, there are people who made pornography that people now look at as art and say, no, that's art. You know, like that's certainly like the bulk of what Vinegar Syndrome puts out on Blu-ray is like movies that were just made for Times Square audiences and now people are looking at as art. Or there's been a big resurgence in people like my friend Evan has a great podcast where he, he talks about gay pornography movies and magazines from the 70s and 80s and looking at it uh, as art um, because it is you know something made by somebody. It says something if that if maybe their intention is titillation, but there actually is something more interesting there. And this movie definitely doesn't feel like it's made for titillation because it's so sad. Unless that's your fetish, I guess, is like sad, <laughs> really sad breakup, uh, blowjob. I don't know. But like, yeah, it's uh, I think this movie is this movie is definitely more art than porn. But it is porn in terms of this is an X-rated movie showing you things that are usually only seen in, you know, pornography. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I did want to comment on one thing I noticed when I was rewatching Buffalo 66 which is just how much watching that made me think of the Spike Jones Charlie Kaufman films. Hmm. Like just the the feeling, the tone, the sort of the messing with form, the the oh and the scenes with the parents at the at the table uh, after just having recently just seen I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. The yeah, it it feels like they had to have thought about Buffalo 66 when they were making it, hmm. thinking of ending things because it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's very different, but very similar. And there's something about the way Kaufman approaches it again, maybe because Kaufman isn't in front of the camera that he can get away with exploring what he explores in hmm. a way that would be different. That's different when you're Vincent Gallo and you're in front of the camera, I'm not saying that they're hmm. exactly the same, but maybe there's something there. So final <laughs> verdict we both love the brown bunny and <laughs> anything else? Uh, per your discussion before this episode, you made me watch the opening credits to the evil Knievel movie, oh. <laughs> which I'm guessing you watched because of the motorcycle aspect. <laughs> that is a great theme song <laughs> for if anyone's like, you know, the op, you know, kind of tangent, 
if you've never seen the opening credits of the Evil Knievel movie called Viva Knievel, please, it's on you. It's on YouTube. You know what? They should put that song over the first scene of Brown Bunny. And what would that? <laughs> what's that movie? Let's see. Let's. I want to see someone do that. Like put that song over that scene. It's such a good. <laughs> I watched this film and it is almost as unfathomable as the Brown Bunny. The cast, Gene Kelly, Lauren Hutton, Red Buttons, Leslie Nielsen, uh, Dabney Coleman, Frank Gifford, and Marjo Gortner. And when he was in wow. pure Marjo-ness, really caught off wow. of Earthquake. And uh, wow. it's it's... It's weird. It is, but it's a it's another motorcycle movie. In this case, Gene Kelly plays the dysfunctional dark. <laughs> this is this is maybe what's why I think there are many reasons that the Brown Bunny is better than Viva Knievel. But evil in this this is a movie that is set up like most movies about like that are that are like this like starring vehicles to make him out as the most heroic person in the world, which also makes him ludicrous. Like there's just crazy, stupid scenes in this. If this was a different kind of podcast where we make fun of bad movies, we could definitely do one about Viva Knievel. Uh, but, uh, but we would never do that. No, no. I, podcast. I think I, I would no. recommend it to some of like, I, there are some that are people that are good at being funny in a way that isn't hurtful about it. But I do really really recommend finding Viva Knievel from 1977 and watching this movie and if not just watching those opening credits because this song you know what let's just play this song out into our ads and stuff and then come back and we'll tell you what we're doing next week love it a music fan are you the one making the playlist for all the parties then you gotta listen to the pinch music podcast where we interview musicians engineers producers and music lovers of all types we even put together playlists for any and all occasions so if you want to have the beatles versus stones debate pick up some engineering tips or just discover a new artist you gotta check out the pinch music podcast all a part of the paper house network
Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Because of what we were just talking about, I kind of wanted to check in. In our intro episode, you talked about your work on your new book that you've been researching. Oh, yeah. And talking about Brown Bunny and talking about or the brown bunny and talking about vinegar syndrome and what you were talking about right before we went into our break there, it made me think maybe there's a connection you might want to, you know, talk about, about what's, <laughs> what's going on with Emmanuel Emmanuel. Oh man, I'm working on it because I'm stuck at home still again, year two now. Uh, I'm really trying to get this book done. And thankfully my wife is, loves me and can tolerate me watching <laughs> Lots of adult movies every day while she's trying to get her work done. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, deep, deep in it. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's, there are movies kind of similar to Brown Bunny. Like the one I saw today, uh, it's a lot, was a lot of driving, a lot of sex. The sex wasn't sexy, uh, whether that was intentional or not. And it definitely has, I mean, and we didn't talk about it, but the Brown Bunny, like Buffalo 66, definitely has kind of a 70s vibe to it. Like a, like the way it's filmed, the way the filmmaking is, has that kind of the toughness of the 70s. Um, yeah, but now I, I'm, I'm enjoying watching all these dirty movies. <laughs> Do you have a, a thesis that's forming in terms of your appreciation of the Emmanuel franchise? I, I, I don't know, like, because the way that I'm writing it and the way that I, I wrote Destroy Movies with Zach is like I kind of take it one movie at a time. It's sort of like building blocks. And it, and, and I, I will see the patterns and see what the thesis is once it's done. Like That certainly helped, happened with Destroy All Movies, where I just kind of, we each took the movie one at a time and looked at it for what that one movie was. And then when you put it all together, you see the trajectory of how punk was treated in movies. You kind of look at this big story. But we didn't know that big story till we went through all of it. And so I'm kind of like, and unlike the punk book, I'm actually writing this book chronologically. Like I'm starting, I started in 1959 and now I'm on 1975 and I'm going to go all the way up till, you know, 2020, whatever I ended at. And so I am starting to see sort of like, not necessarily like a grand thesis, but you're definitely picking up on patterns on how sex and sexuality is portrayed in movies throughout different years and eras, which is very fascinating. Like things that are considered taboo here aren't here or things that are just sort of like, okay here or not okay here. And that has definitely been a fascinating journey just to kind of see. Yeah. Cause it's, the, these movies aren't technically pornography in a way like they're not like triple X movies, but they do are in exist in the world of porn, soft porn. But just kind of seeing sort of the story that it's telling so far up to 1975 is very interesting. 
I'm struck by something. We, I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here. But <laughs> when Zach was on, Zach Carlson, who you co-wrote Destroy All Movies with and who you write with regularly as a, uh, you work with, collaborate uh, on screenplays and productions, mm-hmm. all kinds of things, just longtime friends. And you've both speaking, spoken glowingly of each other on this show. And when he was on as a substitute, while you were writing, you know, researching this uh, this project, he divulged to our audience in the discussion of uh, birth and t- particularly about Eyes Wide Shut that he doesn't watch movies that have any sexual content whatsoever. He's opposed to sex in films. Now, that's a... <laughs> when I pushed a little bit, it turns out that he's not quite as prudish as that as that might make him sound. But it does, you know, I don't know, Dr. Sidney Friedman, <laughs> as played by Alan Arbus, might look at this and say, mm, is there a rebellion going on here? This is a... <laughs> You have chosen to follow up Destroy All Movies with a project that is intensely alienating to your partner. He would never work on it. Yeah, you know, it's... Is that some Paul McCartney-level passive aggression? This this Uh, is I love Paul McCartney, uh, by the way. This is my McCartney, too. Yes, this one is his. No, it's just, you know, I... I'm fat. You know, I'm like I do a lot of stuff with him, but my own stuff is definitely very different. Like the movie that I finished making, or that I'm finishing making right now, is not at all like the kind of movie we would have written together. So, like, I'm kind of off on my own little place at the same time as doing stuff with him. Because, like, at the same time, him and I are working on a second edition of the punk book. So, like, I'm doing both at the same time. So, got it. You just got to hide the Emmanuel materials. <laughs> Well, it's okay now because you're doing all this, like not in person. But when when we get back to come to hanging out, <laughs> hide it under the hide carpet. it under the bed. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My bed is bound teetering on this pyramid of uh, dirty VHS tapes. So, <laughs> so you, uh, Radio Eight Balls, your show where you answer questions by picking a song at random. Have you ever had? A pornographic person on as a guest, like, or someone from the adult industry. Oh yeah, as a guest on your show. Oh yeah, several times. Uh, Nina Hartley has been a guest. Oh, she's on great. Radio Eight Ball. Uh, she was a guest when Jenny Jenkins was the musical guest. So can you you know Jenny Jenkins from Olympia, singer songwriter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was I, that was one of the most perfect pairings. If you know Jenny, <laughs> she's she sings songs that are very sexual. Uh, she plays a ukulele. She uh, is just sort of like, I don't know. She's not, uh, how, do I de- how do I describe this in a way that she's beautiful and big and gawky and Jewish and I love her. And she's not, when I say she sings sexy songs, I don't want it to sound like she's doing some kind of hoochie coochie show. They're sort of very <laughs> feminist, but also very sexy and like sexual empowerment kind of songs. And her whole way of doing it is just really friendly and down to earth and not what you'd think of as anything having to do with porn. But when mm-hmm. I told her that she was doing the show with Nina Hartley, she was super excited because it also makes sense because of her music. And then bringing together these two worlds 
just felt like one of the most perfect pairings mm-hmm. we've had. Uh, <laughs> we also had Diana Prince on the show, who is now a like the co-host on Joe Bob Briggs's new show, The Last mm-hmm. Drive-In, I think it's called, on Shudder. But uh, she's uh, she's been been in porn, and she it's it's funny the way she uh, that I got to know her. She showed up at a horror convention where I was signing Nightmare on Elm Street stuff in cosplay as me, as my <laughs> character, as as Rick from Nightmare on Elm Street, and. Uh, She's great. She's a she's a tremendous friend, and uh, it's so odd going places with her. We've gone to some sometimes like she like I invited her to one of the nightmare events once because I knew she would get a kick out of it. But also, she's like she's I I don't think she actually is significantly taller than me. But being around her, I feel like she is significantly taller than me because she's just bigger than me in every possible way but also really sweet and down to earth and just loves horror she's just super into horror films and and music and uh yeah just a very sweet lady we uh i went to see Corey feldman perform with her once that was also with her and her (laughs) son um was really that was a that was a that was a i don't want to say a wild time because it wasn't really wild it was super i was really wholesome um, but if you've ever had a chance to see Corey Feldman perform, it's I've not. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, it, that's one like the first yeah, the, the first ten minutes are so over the top. It's amazing. It's kind of like the beginning of the Viva Knievel film. It's <laughs> and then and then he's like, we're gonna go all night long, and you're like, I don't know if I can go all night long with this, but it was it was great. That was at, and that was like that was at the Roxy is such a. A thing. Anyway, uh, none of that. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, and, and uh, so yeah, they've both been. Uh, Diana's been on Radio Eight Ball a couple times, and Nina's been on Radio Eight Ball once, and we've had lots of like sex positive teachers. We were on a station in Seattle that was like a sort of a woo woo commercial kind of station, like lots of ads for crystals and yoga and Kabbalah <laughs> classes, and. Uh, Nice. vitamin supplements and you know we we brought the just like vincent gallo brought the sex to the brown bunny we tried to bring it in a healthy way to the seattle airwaves and <laughs> and other places so yeah yeah that's so that's uh thanks for asking <laughs> uh, well, i think we should do a world is wrong about porn or something episode it seems like in the future it seems like we should do something yeah, I don't know what that would I don't know what that would be or what movie that would be around. Maybe you, listeners, you can tell us. Well, you know uh, what? I feel uh, like that's what we just did because the, oh yeah, maybe I was thinking because like the brown bunny. It's like one of the complaints about porn is that it's that it's low class. It's like there's just there's not a lot of it's just it's all you know wham bam. It's just it's crass. It's not mm-hmm. treated like sexuality isn't treated with any respect. It does. You know, it doesn't deal with any of the like really complex and interesting questions around sex, as far as consent and all these things. And so Vincent Gallo did make a movie that answers those critics. It's like, okay, you want 
you want a porn, you want your porn to not to actually have some art and some content and like to be valid as art and not just function for prurient, like just purely on that level. Well, here it is, mm-hmm. and the world hated it. <laughs> but I, I feel like this is the best porn film, if we're going to call it a porn film. This is the best porn film we could have covered to make this point. Because everyone sure. else's is so personal. Like, if you were yeah. going to talk about, like, how would we do it? Yeah. You want to have a production meeting at the hour and one at the 90 minute mark of this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Wow. okay it's uh, open the door that we could do more and if there's listeners out there who are like hey oh yeah porn movies amazing as a movie you should cover it please tell us i would like to, to hear about that so well i mean doesn't like you could doesn't gasper know have some stuff that crosses yeah, this but i'm thinking like is there one that's not made by some arty dude that is just made within the porn industry that is really really good yes there is I would like, you know, I don't know which one to pick, but like, oh, yeah. it would okay. be interesting to cover one of those movies sometime, you know? Yeah, you know what? I would really, you know, I would love to to know who actually watches those films with their pants <laughs> this... on, you know? <laughs> maybe only people who are writing books about them, but maybe, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I maybe I've divulged too much. <laughs> Anyway, say the Brown Bunny is a porn <laughs> film that you can keep your pants on too. Let's put that on the poster. <laughs> Says Joel Siegel of the ABC. Yeah, why are you giving away uh, my credits? <laughs> so coming up, you'll be actually doing the next episode with my director's wall co-host AJ Gonzalez. So I'm excited. What did you guys finally pick? You went through many titles. So what was it you came up with? Yeah, yeah. AJ sent me a very uh impressive and challenging and confronting list and <laughs> of Ron Howard films <laughs> I'm there, he had far and away was on his list and I just my there brain like he I just, loves oh he I loves it and I I just I just <laughs> eventually I think we probably should do that one but I wanted to have a fun time with him and i wanted him to have a fun time and i knew we couldn't it with me just being like really you like that (laughs) but we settled on a film that i already liked but we've already recorded the episode and i realize now that i love this film and the film is vanilla sky uh from cameron crowe starring tom cruise penelope cruz cameron diaz jason lee and based upon the 1997 film Abre los Ojos or Open Your Eyes. And it really, it ended up being an epic conversation. Not only did we unpack this film, but we unpacked Cameron Crowe. We unpacked nice. Tom Cruise. We unpacked the trend of films around the millennium that explore the question of whether or not we are living in a real reality or a dream. And that included even a conversation about the recent documentary from Rodney Asher, A Glitch in the Matrix. And most exciting for me, it gave me an opportunity to explore a theory I've had for a long time about the influence of Pete Townsend and particularly his unfinished rock opera, Lifehouse. 
as an influence on Cameron Crowe and his films and something that's wow. something that uh, AJ was unaware of. But in the end, I think uh, I think he corroborated. So it's uh, get ready. <laughs> watch Vanilla Sky. Watch Abre Los Ojos. Watch every Tom Cruise film. Watch every Cameron Crowe film. <laughs> Find any materials you can on Lifehouse, including the video I uploaded to Vimeo, our Vimeo account for the Lifehouse Matrix. And then take whichever red or blue pill suits your mood. <laughs> so that's what Phew, we're going to be doing right, next. Homework. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have anything you want to share with us, any questions or concerns, I mean, certainly Brown Bunny, the Brown Bunny, Vincent Gallo, we we know that we're stepping into a, ter a territory where it's going to be confronting <laughs> for some of you. And we invite uh, the, your communication. I mean, keep, I, I hope we can keep it respectful. But if you feel in any way disrespected by us, I really hope not. Right? Well, I feel like we did this pretty respectfully. But yeah, is it yeah. possible to like Vincent Gallo in a respectful way? I don't know. And that's really <laughs> something that I'm. I really am hoping we get some kind of reflection from our audience on that. Because otherwise, I'll just feel like you walked away offended and just didn't want to say anything. So uh, you can find us at contact at the world is wrong podcast dot com on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast and Brian. Uh, any I, I sort of. Uh, jumped all over the Vincent Gallo thing here, but is there anything, last words you want to say to people who may, you know, just have thoughts or feelings about Vincent Gallo, the Brown Bunny, <laughs> Emmanuel, Emmanuel, a plea for <laughs> creative porn? I think it's just, you know, just because you've heard bad things about a movie or it seems like it's scary to you, maybe that's all the more reason why you should watch it because it'll either way be something exciting and different than the stuff that you're normal you know normally watching so don't, indeed don't be, don't be nervous it's just a movie yeah indeed that's that is that is our ethos here <laughs> you know if you're going to be wrong about something at least watch it first so <laughs> that will keep you from being in that particular way the world that is wrong about things and so it is now with a moderately heavy heart that i have to inform you all that wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. And she says, Two dollars. Will you be racing again? Mm -hmm. Going to California. I gotta be there by Friday. California. I always wanted to go to California. Really? Yeah. It's nice there. Is it? Mm-hmm. I thought it would be. Is your name Violet? Yes, it is. Who made the necklace? I made it. You think you'd want to come with me? I don't even know you. Please. Please. Please come with me.